0: Derek Chauvin, the police officer who killed George Floyd on May 25th, 2020 in Minneapolis, has been found guilty on all three counts, including two counts of murder. He was immediately remanded to jail in preparation for the sentencing, which will be in eight weeks. Chauvin is facing 75 years in prison. This rare verdict against a police officer was a victory for the People's Movement.
1: We need a new system. We need a new society.
0: Welcome to today's episode of In The News, our Tuesday show on The Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's April 20th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. And once you subscribe, register for our patrons-only seminar with Brian Becker tomorrow, April 21st at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Supporters can ask Brian questions beforehand and live on the seminar. Make sure to join us by subscribing at patreon.com slash the socialist program. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarim, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarem is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, it's currently 5:40 p.m. Eastern Time, which is 4:40 p.m. Minneapolis time. We pre-recorded our show earlier today, but you and I are back on to discuss this historic victory for the people. Brian, this is truly historic.
1: It is. This is a victory that belongs exclusively to the people. 35 million people went to the streets in May, June, July of this year. It was the single largest protest movement ever in the United States. Black people, Latino, Asian American, Native, Indigenous, Arab American, white people, people young and old, people from all walks of life stood together, demanding justice for George Floyd. George Floyd was killed on May 25th, 2020. Derek Chauvin was videotaped. We all saw it. Nine and a half minutes where he nonchalantly put his knee on his neck. He kept his hand in his pocket, showing that he was not under duress or threatened by George Floyd. And he killed George Floyd. And if you think back, Nicole, at the time, even though it was on video, what happened to Derek Chauvin is what happens almost every time, which is nothing. It was only when the people took to the streets demanding justice that the government was finally compelled to arrest Derek Chauvin. He's been free on bail since then. But do you remember how the media treated this when it began and before the nationwide uprising of racism changed the political climate in this country?
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, every time you read a story in the paper, every time you read a story about some sort of crime that was committed, it's always through the police spokesman or through the police's eyes. You never actually get to hear what happened to the person, you know, what the family knows, what the bystanders know. We actually have a copy of the statement that Minneapolis police spokesman John Elder sent to reporters right after George Floyd was killed. The headline is, all that you really need to know, man dies after medical incident during police interaction. So the defense's argument has stayed the same this whole time. Oh, no, no, Chauvin didn't kill anyone. You know, he might have pushed on George Floyd's heart, but George Floyd's heart was bad. He was on drugs, all these things. You know, the statement says he resisted arrest. The statement says, you know, there was a report of a forgery in progress. The statement says he was under the influence. He physically resisted officers. You know, they called for an ambulance and it wasn't until he got to the medical center. It wasn't until then that he died a short time later. And at no time were any weapons of any type used by anyone in the incident. You read it and you think, Oh man, that's that's too bad. Like this sounds like a tough situation where you know, no one could have known what better to do and what could have happened.
1: Yes, what the police are doing there is what they always do, which is to blame the victim of police violence, the victim of police murder for their own death. And they can do it because the police put out a story, the other police corroborate the story, the media dutifully echoes the police version, and life goes on. That's why you know. since the Derek Chauvin trial started, Nicole, this was up two or three days ago, so the number might be higher, 64 other people had been killed by the police just since the beginning of this trial. That's three weeks ago. Now, all of those people, in every case, the police are not arrested. The only reason, the only reason the police in this case, the only reason Derek Chauvin was arrested was because of the uprising of people. Now, I know there's a debate inside some parts of the left over the issue of abolition. Some people in the movement, some groups in the movement say they're not even for sending police to jail because if you do anything that sends a cop to jail, even a cop or a Klansman, somebody who lynches somebody or a cop who carries out a violent murder, then you're supporting the carceral system. You're supporting the system in America. And that the only thing we can do is abolish the police. Yes, this American police force, 790,000 cops in uniform. If they were put under one employer, it would be the single biggest employer in the country. Yes, the police should be abolished. But when the police have impunity, when they never go to jail, when they never face 45 or 50 or 75 year sentences, even for murdering somebody, in this case, again, an unarmed black man, in plain daylight and caught on videotape, if they keep going free, then they do it over and over and over again. There has to be accountability. George Floyd's family, the family of other police victims, they want accountability. They want justice. They want to jail killer cops. And the only reason Derek Chauvin is going to jail right now is because of the righteous movement of the people.
0: I just want to emphasize how huge this is. You know, he wasn't only charged with manslaughter. They never arrested him in the first place until there was a people's movement, until people pushed back. Then they could have charged him with just manslaughter or with something a little bit more minor that wouldn't carry very much time. But the people kept pushing. They pushed so hard, actually, that the charges were amended to bring on murder in the second degree. So not only is there secondary manslaughter charge, there was a third degree murder charge. There was also a second degree murder charge. And there was a lot of chatter in the mainstream press about, well, you know, they're never gonna actually get second degree murder. That's too serious. Like, you know, they won't be able to prove that and the jury won't vote for that. But the jury did actually decide that that is what was apt. And that's what they saw because the evidence obviously pointed towards that. All they had to show was that, Chauvin killed him, which is so obvious. All they had to show was that Chauvin was at least one significant factor. If Chauvin hadn't been kneeling on his neck, he wouldn't have died. And we know that to be true. Chauvin literally crushed his airway. So second degree murder, that can carry as many as 40 years in prison. Third degree murder can carry up to 25 and second degree manslaughter up to 10 years. So the state is asking right now for the maximum time of 75 years. There'll be a couple of other hearings over the next few weeks to decide how high or how low to go in the sentencing, but they'll have a sentencing hearing in another eight weeks. So we'll know then what this will look like. But again, Brian, I mean, this is just how many hundreds, thousands of victims of police murder you know, are sitting here thinking and crying and wanting justice for themselves. And you're right. This is the way we get justice. This is, you know, it's not the only way, but under this system right now, this is what we have to push for. This is the thing we can actually use the justice system to do is to lock up these thugs, these criminals, these cops who kill with complete impunity
1: until today. Indeed. You know, I don't even know if it's about us using the justice system per se. I frame it this way. If the police can kill people every day, if they can act like an occupying force in black communities and kill black and Latino and indigenous people and Asian people and working class people generally, but especially black and Latino people, if they can do it every day and there's never an account, they're never punished. If this goes on and on and on, then they have a license to kill and they use that license to kill and it destroys neighborhoods. It destroys families and not only the individual who's the victim, they're destroying entire communities in this country. And, you know, it was so interesting, Nicole. I know we have to move on and there's other big stories again about how the government is trying to, in spite of the resistance that led to this verdict, trying to push back and criminalize protest right now. We're gonna talk about that. But before we do, I wanna make mention of the fact that the US capitalist ruling class knew that they had a tiger by the tail here. If there was no conviction, if there was no conviction of Derek Chauvin, as we've been saying on our show, this country would rise up in rebellion. That's exactly what happened in Los Angeles in 1992 when the eight or so police officers who were beating Rodney King almost to death and it was caught on video. When they were acquitted, LA erupted. 50 people were killed thousands of soldiers were deployed to LA. It was a massive rebellion. That is what would have happened all around the country. Now, the US government and the capitalist class that manages the US government, they turned a blind eye normally to police killing, but they needed a conviction now to avoid the rebellion. So you could see in the way this trial was conducted that the police department itself turned against Derek Chauvin, you know, that normal sort of solidarity where the police always protect each other, that broke down because the police department here was under strict guidance from more powerful forces in the U.S. government and within the U.S. establishment that they needed to show that Derek Chauvin was an anomaly. He was a bad apple. He did not follow police training regulations that he could be disposed of. And so- Under the pressure of the people, under the pressure of this mass movement, the police themselves turned on Derek Chauvin. That's why this conviction happened. And again, it was a political, not a legal calculation by the government, by the ruling class, again, because of the power of the people and the power of the people that was about to erupt again in another nationwide demonstration of anger and outrage if a verdict of guilty had not come in. Anyway, we're going to keep talking about it. We'll talk about it more the rest of this week. People are in the streets. People are celebrating. They're not done protesting. They want more justice. They want to get rid of the police. They want to abolish the police. They want to defund the police. They want a system that puts justice first. All of that's going to keep going. So we're going to keep talking about it. But let's turn, Nicole, to Florida, because in Florida, DeSantis has moved successfully so far to make free speech and the exercise of your First Amendment rights a criminal act, even a felony. And again, this is the anticipated pushback by the right wing and by the establishment. Let's talk about Florida.
0: In Florida, an anti- protest bill. I mean, it's really an actual anti-protest bill was passed by the Florida legislature and signed yesterday by Governor Ron DeSantis. I'm going to play a quick clip from a local news outlet. This is News
2: 4 Jacksonville. Republicans are celebrating a new anti-rioting law that goes into effect immediately signed by Governor Ron DeSantis today. Democrats are calling it a sad day and say
0: the law is unconstitutional. The new law and order measure has been hotly debated since the governor announced his support last September. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was surrounded by law enforcement during today's bill signing ceremony in Polk County. Among other things, the new law creates a new crime of mob intimidation. It enhances riot-related penalties, and it makes it harder for any local municipality to defund police and reduce spending on law enforcement. State Representative Angie Nixon from Jacksonville joined the state's top elected Democrat.
3: super upset about this bill. We know that this bill was by design. Clearly, there's a group in the state legislature that felt that they were about to lose power.
0: Okay, so let's break down that clip a little bit because News 4 Jacksonville calls it an anti-rioting bill, and that's what Governor Ron DeSantis has been calling it. But, you know, the things that this law does, and it goes into effect immediately, grants civil legal immunity to people who drive through protesters who are blocking a road. So the white nationalists who killed Heather Heyer during Charlottesville, during the Unite the Right rally, the guy who drove into intentionally and killed Heather Heyer, he would be civilly protected. I mean, this is legalizing, terrorizing and killing protesters. It also creates a broad category for misdemeanor arrest during protests. And anybody who's charged under that provision will also be denied bail during their first court appearance. They're saying that they're doing that to prevent people from rejoining ongoing protests. But I mean, that's A huge penalty. That means you will have to sit in jail for much, much longer. It also creates a new felony crime of aggravated rioting that carries a sentence of up to 15 years in prison. And I want to talk about this new crime of, quote unquote, mob intimidation. I looked at the bill. This is HB1 in Florida. And the way they define this new crime, mob intimidation, is it's either, quote, to use force or threaten to use imminent force to compel or induce or attempt to compel or induce another person to do or refrain from doing any act or to assume, abandon, or maintain a particular viewpoint against his or her will. So I'll break that down because that was a lot of ors or ands, but essentially the part that is completely, completely infuriating and unconstitutional is to compel or induce, or even attempt to compel or induce someone else to assume or maintain a viewpoint. That's it. So you could be standing up in front of a group of people and trying to persuade someone of a thing or stating your opinion. And, you know, police could use that to say you are trying to get someone to maintain a viewpoint. These are First Amendment rights. This is the right to peacefully assemble. The measure also protects Confederate monuments. And Brian, I want to get your thoughts on this. But before I do, I'm going to read a short quote from Rachel Gilmer. She's the co-director of Dream Defenders. She said there were protests in at least a third of the state's 67 counties last summer during the huge rebellion against racism, including in rural areas that weren't known and hadn't had a lot of demonstration against racial justice in the past. And she said it was no coincidence that DeSantis called for this bill. And she said it, quote, meant to repress and censor our movements because the state is ground zero for the Black Lives Matter movement. What are your thoughts on them? This is so clearly unconstitutional.
1: Yeah, there's several issues. One is there's been a lot of mobilization by people in Florida against this bill. They're trying to stop it, but this is a juggernaut. And DeSantis, of course, is trying to, you know, he's running for the Republican nomination already in 2024. He hopes to be anointed by Donald Trump as a potential proxy for Trump in the event that Trump doesn't run for election once again in 2024. And so there's lots of big money, right wing money behind DeSantis, and law enforcement is mobilizing. But the issue is not only will the people mobilize, the issue also will be what will the courts do? Of course, the Supreme Court has been stacked with political right wingers. The question of whether these kind of laws that clearly make a joke out of the First Amendment, they make a joke out of the First Amendment. You know, it says the First Amendment says Congress shall pass no law that will prohibit people's right to speak out. So a big issue will be what will happen to this in the courts, but beyond Florida, and as you mentioned, all around the country, including, I would say in I think more than 30 states, there's a well-funded operation by ALEC, the business right-wing lobbying group, the Koch brothers, and other right-wingers to criminalize dissent. There are very significant bills That criminalize people protesting against pipelines. We see right now in the protest movement by indigenous people, it's really they don't call themselves protesters, they call themselves water protectors. And of course, they are protecting the water from pipelines like the Line Three pipeline being built by Enbridge Corporation. They're being targeted by these laws and by law enforcement and by police and by sheriffs, using these laws and more laws that are coming down the pike to send people to jail, to send people to prison. And again, sending people to prison for kinds of protests that have been considered cherished examples of the exercise of free speech rights in America. Of course, if Dr. Martin Luther King were doing what he did prior to his assassination in 1968, in these 30 states or more, Many of these activities would now be felony crimes committed by Dr. King and his supporters.
0: Brian, there are 93 bills that are similar that have been proposed in 35 states just since George Floyd was killed in May. And some of the examples, just to emphasize what you were saying about how, you know, this is so see-through. Some of the bills would ban, quote unquote, taunting police. I mean, what is that?
1: Oh, I oh wait a second! I know what that is. That's the people. That's the people who were telling Derek Chauvin, "You're killing him. Don't kill him." That would be considered a taunt by the police,
0: right? Don't don't kill the guy that you're currently actually murdering. That'll be charged that way.
3: And there were all these lawmakers. I'm thinking of Louisville, actually, in terms of Breonna Taylor. All these lawmakers offended by some of the chants of the last year. F-12, I'm thinking, or can we curse on the show? (laughs) I think we can. I think we can. Yeah. So a, a big chant was fuck 12, 12 meaning the number for the police. And so people here in DC, in Louisville, they took exception to that chant. And you could even heard Trump at that time talk about the disrespect of the police. And that was something particularly called out. Right. I mean, another one
0: is camping on state property. That also feels like something that is so clearly targeted at people in Louisville who were sitting and peacefully sitting and occupying the lawn of the state capitol saying, We want justice for Breonna Taylor. The cops who've killed her haven't even been arrested, haven't even been talked to. I mean, it's so see through and transparent that this is absolutely to criminalize dissent. One other component that I want to highlight that is. I mean, just nauseating bills in Arizona, Indiana, Minnesota and Oregon would strip public assistance such as food stamps, welfare and unemployment compensation from people convicted of participating in a riot or inciting one. So using these now widely expanded definitions of what participating in a riot is, which could just be being at a protest when someone else is violent and you are not. Now you can also not be allowed to have food. Not be given any sort of compensation if you lose your job like you might in the middle of a pandemic or any other time. This is disgusting.
1: And also, there's a conflation of protest and riot. What they mean by riot is not even sort of what you were alluding to, Nicole, which is a real thing where a crowd, let's say a thousand people come together and somebody in the crowd breaks a window. And then the police say, it's a riot, and everybody around the one person who actually broke the window, they are rioters because they are in proximity to the riot. And that's what, of course, like on January 20th, 2017, when the police kettled all those people in Washington, D.C. at Trump's inauguration, and as they've done in many other instances, the whole crowd is deemed to be a riot because one person broke a window or was, quote, rioting, right? Right. But then there's the other issue, which is that there is a conflation of all protests as riots. And, you know, I was talking to organizer and activist Kim Smith in South Carolina, or I think we were interviewing her for our show, Loud and Clear. And she was talking about the fact that people during the summer in anti racist protests in Columbia, South Carolina, who were like handing out water at a protest, they were charged with rioting, like the police just loosely used the term rioting and the charge of rioting against people who are involved in all kinds of protests, including protests where there's no vandalism, no property destruction, no violence whatsoever. It's just a conflation of protests and rioting. And that's what this bill in Florida says. It's called the anti-riot bill, but it's really a bill against protest.
4: Yeah, and you know, the United States likes to portray itself as the country that invented free speech and civil liberties because there's the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. But when you look at the actual history of this country, I mean, the stuff that we're talking about, these ridiculous infringements on free speech rights that are obviously designed to suppress people exercising their First Amendment civil liberties. I mean, there's such a long history of this. Like, for instance, do you know that between 1950 and 1971, there was a law on the books authorizing the government to set up concentration camps and preemptively detain, quote unquote, subversives? It was called the McCarran Act. From 1950 to 1971, the concentration camp provision was legal. There's also something called the Smith Act that was passed in 1940, and it made it illegal to advocate the forcible overthrow of the government. But what that was used to do was to prosecute people for quote-unquote seditious literature. And so they would have trials where the only evidence introduced was passages from books that they found in the homes of suspected radicals that they raided and said, look, this is advocating the overthrow of the government. That's what's in this book. Send this person to prison because they own this book. I mean, this is totally baked into the DNA of the government of the United States.
1: Yeah. Just to mention the Smith Act, I mean, in 1949, it sent the 12 leaders of the Communist Party USA to prison for very long periods of time. Gus Hall, who later became the general secretary of the party, he was in prison, I think, for 12 years. Henry Winston, who became the chairman of the Communist Party, he lost his sight in prison. He was in jail for eight years. These people were in prison because because they were Marxists, because they were socialists, because they said they had communist ideas. And likewise, the Smith Act was used in 1942 to send 18 leaders of the Socialist Workers' Party to prison. Again, because of their ideas, their beliefs. I mean, socialism was against the law, basically, in America. I mean, for all intents and purposes, free speech for socialists, for the left, were completely eviscerated with the start of the Cold War. But then if you go back, huge parts of the country never had free speech. I mean, if you talked about getting rid of slavery in the South or the North, I mean, the whole country was based on and premised on slavery, Those were violations of the law. So the whole notion, the whole mythology of free speech rights has been very, very promoted and very, very untrue at the same time.
0: Walter, one issue that is very constantly protested in this country because it's such a huge crisis is the climate crisis. And there are people who protest this from all different angles because it is a crisis from so many different angles, including you know, the environmental injustices that are perpetrated by corporations all over this country every day against poor communities, including black communities, native nations that are being targeted by, you know, organizations and corporations like Tiger Swan at the Dakota Access Pipeline. There are protests all around this country, all around the world, specifically about climate change. And finally, there will be, now that President Biden is in office, one thing that he wanted to actually start talking more about, and we'll see what the actual results are. But he wanted to, and is now starting a virtual climate summit with 40 other, or maybe more at this point, leaders, international leaders on Earth Day this week, so on Thursday. Tell us a little bit more about what's going on on Thursday.
4: Yeah, so this is, I think, essentially an exercise in what the managers of U.S. imperialism called soft power, basically portraying the United States as a responsible leader in world affairs, somebody who's you know making the right decisions for the common good of the planet. And so Joe Biden is convening about 40 different world leaders for the summit. It's going to be held virtually, not in person, but some very high-profile participation from most of the leading countries in the world. And what Biden has in store is a new pledge from the United States in terms of its carbon emission goals or its goals to cut carbon emissions. So Biden will announce that, they'll make a big deal out of it. There may be several other countries that announce carbon emission cut goals either for 2030 or for 2050. And Biden is gonna essentially use this and is using this summit to portray himself as sort of turning the page on the Donald Trump era. And you know, as he has said in the past, making it clear that America is back in the game. So there are a couple reasons to be skeptical about this effort. One is that it continues to follow the basic framework that international climate agreements have followed for the past, I guess, several decades now, going back to the Kyoto Accords, where individual countries set their own non-binding goals for carbon emissions. And they're just sort of on their honor bound to meet them if they can, and they don't necessarily have to stick to the rationale or the methods that they present at these summits. There's no concrete consequences if they don't. Here's another way to think about it that a lot of socialists talk about. There's a climate debt that the imperialist countries, that the rich countries, the advanced capitalist countries, owe to the rest of the world. The earth only has so much capacity to carry carbon. It's finite. Only so much carbon can be released into the atmosphere before there are catastrophic consequences. And the Earth's carbon-carrying capacity was used up by these wealthier countries, the imperialist countries, when they were industrializing in the 19th century or early 20th century. And now that the rest of the world is struggling to develop their economy so that their people can have a decent standard of living... They're in this extremely difficult situation because the same methods of industrialization that was available to the rich countries are not available to them. So there's a climate debt. In fact, it's the rich countries that owe the poor countries. And rather than saying you have to pledge you know, X amount of carbon emission cuts, that should be finance that should be underwritten by either direct payments or other forms of debt cancellation from the imperialist countries that looted the rest of the world for so long to finance their own industrialization. That's not going to be on the agenda for Joe Biden. One other piece of climate-related news relevant to the Biden administration, on Monday, Janet Yellen, who's the Secretary of the Treasury, announced who the department's first ever climate counselor will be. This was a move designed to, like the climate summit, show how environmentally friendly the Biden administration is. There's going to be somebody in the Treasury Department who's just focused on climate. But the guy who they picked, John Morton, is a finance capitalist. He's a finance capitalist. I mean, this guy is not a professional regulator. He's not going to take on the big banks and corporations. He worked as a private equity investor with a financial institution called the Global Environment Fund. He also was a senior executive at another one of these investment firms called Pollination. He's a green capitalist, right? I mean, he's one of these guys who think that you can make a huge profit off of these sort of halfway solutions to climate change. And it signals that the Biden administration is committed to this approach whereby we solve climate change by making it profitable to solve climate change. But that is never going to happen, certainly not at the timeline that is necessary to stave off total disaster for the world as a consequence of the changing climate.
3: And Walter, I want to add that before Biden gets to his summit, climate justice advocates with 350.org and the Build Back Fossil Free Coalition plan to deliver a replica of New York City's famous climate clock to Biden's climate envoy, John Kerry. I know that's a very controversial appointment he made. But the clock shows the time remaining to reduce emissions before the effects of the climate crisis become irreversible. And so as of today, the clock now shows that humans have six years and 255 days to reduce emissions. So Biden is holding that summit on this Thursday, April 22nd, Earth Day. And this annual time to think about our planet comes at a time when the climate crisis has only worsened since the signing of that very weak non-binding 2015 Paris climate agreement that Trump left with glee and that now President Biden has rejoined. But like you said, it's non-binding. And along with the climate crisis, environmental activists are using Earth Day to reveal to the public just how bad plastic pollution is, how at most only 10% of plastic is ever recycled and only 2% of the plastic waste ever created has been recycled. And they're talking about how the push for recycling plastic was a very convenient campaign supported by corporations to take the blame away from multinational corporations for the production of plastic and put the blame, the weight on consumers, you know, working people who must shop for food and other essentials for recycling the plastic, you know, when corporations can create other types of packaging and containers, but plastic is cheaper and creates more profits for corporations. So worldwide, Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, and Nestle are the biggest plastic polluters. And most of us don't know that all these single plastic bottles that I hope we aren't using for water and for soda are produced by the same fossil fuel companies like ExxonMobil, Shell, and Chevron Phillips, responsible for ruining the environment in another way. So this is Sam Chaitan Welsh, a campaigner for Greenpeace in the UK in a video posted on Instagram. Since
4: 1950, only 9% of all the plastic ever made has actually been recycled. Not only that, but the plastics industry, that means you know the fossil fuel industry, big brands, big companies like Coke and Pepsi are projected to double plastic production over the next 10 years. We can never recycle our way out of this crisis. That's not the same as me telling you that we should stop recycling altogether. If your bathtub was overflowing, You wouldn't go grab a mop and bucket, would you? You'd go and turn off the tap. And that's what we need to do. We need to turn off the tap, deal with this problem at source and switch to reuse and refill like yesterday. The plastics industry know that we need to do this. They're just not doing it because at the moment, keeping things as they are is more profitable for them.
3: So... Like Welsh mentioned, organizers around this issue of plastics aren't saying that it's useless to continue to recycle your bags and pieces of plastic that you get in packaging. And, you know, now with the COVID pandemic and a lot of people are ordering, Amazon is a huge, huge feeder into this waste stream of plastic and cardboard and styrofoam and pellets and plastic pillows and all that sort of thing. Because they say it's better to feed your recyclables into the recycling system, even if it's poor, because it keeps those same items out of landfills, out of streams, out of the ocean. And, you know, it takes 450 years for a plastic bottle to disintegrate. So Earth Day is a time to... You know, it gives people some time to stop and think about the planet and think about some of our habits and think about the responsibility of corporations and what their real motives are. And so we have a clip from The Story of Stuff. It's a short documentary that you can find on YouTube released on Earth Day in 2009 about the life cycle of material goods and the planning behind US consumerism. It's narrated by Annie Leonard, executive director of Greenpeace where she talks about recycling being important, but not actually enough. And she also talks in the second clip about how much of our stuff is thrown out and how that came to be. Yes,
2: yes, yes, we should all recycle, but recycling is not enough. Recycling will never be enough for a couple reasons. First, the waste coming out of our houses is just the tip of the iceberg. For every one garbage can of waste you put out on the curb, 70 garbage cans of waste were made upstream just to make the junk in that one garbage can you put out on the curb. So even if we could recycle 100% of the waste coming out of our households, it doesn't get to the core of the problems. Also, much of the garbage can't be recycled, either because it contains too many toxics or it's designed not to be recyclable in the first place. 99% of the stuff we harvest, mine, process, transport, 99% of the stuff we run through this system is trashed within six months. So how did this happen? Well, it didn't just happen. It was designed. Two of their most effective strategies are planned obsolescence and perceived obsolescence. It means they actually make stuff to be useless as quickly as possible, so we'll chuck it and buy a new one. Now, perceived obsolescence convinces us to throw away stuff that is still perfectly useful. Advertisements and media in general plays a big role in this. Each of us in the U.S. is targeted with over 3,000 advertisements a day. So I was reading industrial design journals from the 1950s when planned obsolescence was really catching on. These designers are so open about it. They actually discuss how fast can they make stuff break that still leaves the consumer having enough faith in the product to go out and buy another one.
3: Wow. So clips from the story of stuff, that short documentary narrated by Annie Leonard. And so Brian, Nicole, Walter, I just think that Earth Day gives us a time to stop and remember the planet. And also to hold corporations accountable to not just shift the burden on ourselves as working people who have to buy things to survive for food, for essentials. But how those things are packaged, the earth is coming to a tipping point. (laughs) Not only in terms of the climate, but in terms of this waste and trash and garbage that capitalism produces without any thought of how it will be discarded or you know, how it can be recycled so that we can keep the earth green and a living earth for all of us.
1: Before we move on, I want to, and I know we have another story and time is running short. I want to just close this piece out though, by, by mentioning that on earth day, April 22nd, there's going to be mobilizations all around the world. Again, it will be from the people, not from the government, certainly not from Joe Biden's sort of phony climate summit. The Answer Coalition, and I'm one of the organizers with the Answer Coalition, has signed on along with people from all over the world, an appeal issued by the International People's Assembly. I want to read a couple of sentences to you because I think this statement goes right to the heart of what the problem is. Here it is. It is common knowledge that we are at a decisive moment for human survival and for the biodiversity of our planet, there is a serious environmental and public health crisis caused by crimes committed continuously by the greed for profit. The research and scientific data are more and more evident, which you know, and we don't need to quote them. Meanwhile, all the peoples of the world, in the countryside, in the city, feel the consequences of this crisis every day. And the statement goes on because we're talking as Annie Leonard does in her video, The Story of Stuff, about the production. She says they produce products deliberately with obsolescence in mind or perceived obsolescence, meaning these things still work, but we don't think they work or we don't think they're fashionable. And this perceived obsolescence is reinforced by the advertising industry, which is the third biggest capitalist industry in America, when you talk about who that they are, that they is the capitalist class. And this statement that the Answer Coalition has signed from the International People's Assembly says, finally, putting human life and nature above private property is what's necessary. The private appropriation of common goods essential to the life of all, such as land, water, air, and biodiversity, is not acceptable. Their care must be attributed to the people as a collective right. And responsibility for the well being of all people. In short, Nicole, that's the socialist answer to the problem caused by capitalism.
0: So, time is running short. I really want to get to this one last story before we move on to the Liberation News stories. It's so reflective of what we've been talking about today with um, President Biden coming in and saying, you know, he's going to fix the climate when even this new summit isn't going to have anything binding. This is just going to be talking and we'll be saying, scouts honor, I'll definitely reduce climate emissions, but there's nothing binding there. Another incredibly frustrating and really telling thing is happening where Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin, these are two Democrats who are in Congress. These are the two Democrats who made sure that the $15 minimum wage did not actually make it into law. They made sure that it didn't make it into the appropriation bill that Biden and others had put together. And of course, Biden knew that they weren't going to let that happen. But he wanted to say, well, you know, I put this $15 an hour minimum wage in here and look at me, look, I'm so good. He knew very well that they weren't going to pass that. But these are the two people responsible for not even having this basic wage, $15 an hour is this basic wage. And people have been fighting for this for years and years and years. And now there's new news showing that Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin are headlining an event for the National Restaurant Association, which is an anti-union group that is, of course, fighting the $15 minimum wage. Walter, tell us more about this.
4: Yeah, I mean such a disgusting gross example of corruption. I mean, Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin are of course gonna be showered with praise by these big restaurant industry capitalists. And they've really established themselves as this bulwark against against anything that would make people's lives better. The $15 an hour minimum wage is certainly an example of this. I mean, in the current debate over the Biden administration's two-part infrastructure bill, it's I think highly likely that Cinema and Manchin will pull off a same maneuver to block universal pre-K or free community college education. I mean, this is the role that they've sort of set themselves up in. And certainly they deserve to be condemned, you know, individually cinema and mansion for playing this disgusting role. But I think it's also an indictment of the Democratic Party overall because they allow them to play this role. I mean, the Democratic Party, the label Democrat is truly completely meaningless when the party has this position that the president of the United States who is just elected, you know, says he supports at least, you know, that was Biden's public position. They control both houses of Congress. They have overwhelming popular support for the minimum wage increase, I mean, including in majority Republican congressional districts. So they're not going to pay some sort of electoral political cost. And yet Sinema and Manchin are just able to do this because the Democratic Party cannot impose discipline on its own elected officials. The right wing doesn't really have that problem. I mean after several Republican senators voted to impeach Donald Trump uh, a couple of months ago state Republican parties went ballistic. I mean they passed motions of censure against their own sitting congressmen and senators. There's this huge backlash. People were truly, you know, put back into line. And the Democratic Party shows no interest in doing that. One because of their temperament. I mean it's true that they're just kind of pathetic political maneuvers but also i think to a significant extent because this is actually what they want they they don't care if people have a living wage they don't care if people can have a decent place to live or get an education or anything like that, or go to a doctor when they're sick. So they're perfectly content to let cinema and Manchin play this role. And in fact, I think Biden highly prizes these two senators because he sees them as, you know, quote unquote, bipartisan bridge builders, that these are the Democrats who are so right wing that they can talk to Republicans and, and win them over to supporting some of the administration's agenda. I mean, it's just a completely stickening state of affairs. Just like Biden himself. Just like Biden himself.
1: Yeah. I want to just remind people that the last time the minimum wage was increased was 2009. So they stopped the minimum wage from going up to $15. That's true. Also, the minimum wage didn't go up one penny. It's still $7.25. It's been there since 2009. At that time, when the Democrats controlled both houses of Congress, when Obama was president, they had the great courage to raise the minimum wage, which had not been raised for 10 years prior to that. All the time, prices go up, but minimum wage had not gone up. So they raised it from $6.55 an hour to the great $7.25 an hour. Now, in order for the minimum wage today to be what it was in 1968, when Martin Luther King Jr. organized the Poor People's Campaign encampment in Washington, D.C., the minimum wage would have to be $11.40, right? $11.40 because the minimum wage in 1968 was $1.60, by 2021 dollars that would be $11.40 and it hasn't gone up in 12 years and it's still stuck at about 60% of what it was in 1968 and here we have everybody a democratic president, a democratic controlled Senate A Democratic controlled House of Representatives. And this is what they do, which is absolutely nothing for workers and everything for the capitalists who employ workers. And then we're going to be told in two years, well, you got to put your differences aside. And even if you don't like the Democrats, you have to support them because look at how much worse it would be with the Republicans. Well, no, this is the worst when you have the Democrats control all branches of government and still no relief for minimum wage workers in America.
0: Well, Joe Biden is abiding by his campaign promise to bankers, which was that nothing will substantively change. That is absolutely true and absolutely clear. Walter, you're the editor of the Liberation News newsletter. I know there's really great stories sent out earlier this week, and there's always ongoing reporting, new information and new analyses coming out all the time. What are the stories that you really want people to read this week and hear about? And also, tell listeners just a little bit about what's going on with Mumia Abu-Jamal before you get started on that.
4: Yeah, thanks, Nicole. World-renowned political prisoner Mumia Abu-Jamal had heart surgery this week. On Monday, he had heart surgery. It was related to complications from COVID-19. Mumia got COVID-19 because of the squalid, filthy conditions in Pennsylvania prisons that he and so many other prisoners are unjustly exposed to. And of course, Mumia in particular is targeted by prison authority for deadly medical neglect. This isn't the first time that's happened, but Mumia Abu-Jamal had heart surgery. The initial word is positive that surgery went well and that there were not complications, but of course, extremely important to keep an eye on Mumia's situation. People mobilize all around the world to place pressure on Pennsylvania prison authorities to give Mumia the treatment he needs. And that's absolutely going to continue, as is the struggle to free Mumia because he's an innocent man. Just wanted to mention that this Saturday in Philadelphia at 2 p.m., there's going to be a major mobilization demanding Mumia's freedom. That's this Saturday at 2 o'clock at City Hall in Philadelphia. It's Mumia's birthday, and there's going to be other actions happening all across the country as well. And turning to the newsletter, go to liberationnews.org and can sign up for a weekly newsletter that goes out every Monday morning. There's a button front and center at the top. I want to highlight today this article titled, The End of the War in Afghanistan? Question mark. Now, this goes over Joe Biden's big announcement that U.S. troops would be leaving Afghanistan by September 11th of this year. It's an announcement that of course, made a lot of people happy because this 20-year-long brutal war and occupation is so deeply unpopular both here and around the world. But there are a lot of open questions. What's going to happen to the quote-unquote private military contractors, the mercenaries that far outnumber regular troops there? What could happen between now and September 11th? This article, the end of the war in Afghanistan, question mark, that goes into those questions in detail. And if you scroll to the bottom of that article, you'll find a link to a really informative episode of this program, the Socialist Program, titled When U.S. Empire Waged War Versus Socialism in Afghanistan. I highly encourage everybody to listen to that. It's an interview between... Brian and Sarab Eslamim. There is also a second part to that interview series that we did last week on the Socialist Program. Very important information there as well. So, again, go to liberationnews.org, click the button at the top to sign up for our weekly newsletter.
1: Thanks, Walter, and thank you, Nicole and Esther, and of course, to everyone who's listening. Tomorrow we'll be back with Professor Richard Wolf, and on Thursday, the real story will have, as we said at the beginning, a real in-depth look at Vladimir Lenin and his role, his impact on the global socialist movement.
0: You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.